This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Friday, November the 10th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the weekly news panel reassembles Michelle McQuig, Joy Gupta, and myself tackle a variety of subjects, including Newfoundland and Labrador's plan to reduce poverty that includes some universal basic income. How could this be a national template? New data shows the number of immigrants who are choosing to leave Canada. What are the policies that could lead to better immigrant retention. And the BC Securities Commission is offering rewards to whistleblowers who flag fraudulent misconduct. Could the dollar amounts of the war award actually move the needle for someone to snitch? That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv or in audio-only format at amiplus.ca. No matter how you're joining the show, thank you for making a little bit of time on your Friday. The show begins with the top story of the day. Federal Health Minister Mark Holland says his department will consult with Provincial Dental Association that have raised concerns about being left in the dark on the details of the new federal dental care plan. John Kennedy has more on the story. But he says they'll need to sign confidentiality agreements first. Provincial dental associations wrote to the minister last month to express serious concerns about a lack of information about critical aspects of the new plan, which is set to launch before the end of the year. Holland says the associations recently declined conversations after the government asked for confidentiality agreements to be signed. Holland says he wants those talks to remain under wraps until the details of the plan are finalized because Canadians will need clear and simple communication about the program when it's time to launch it. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. And Finance Minister Krisha Freeland has announced that she'll present the fall economic statement on November the 21st. Emily Javesky looks ahead. The mini-budget is set to offer an update on federal finances, as well as new measures that reflect the government's priorities. Freeland has promised that the fall economic statement will focus on housing and affordability, two issues dominating federal politics that are top of mind for Canadians. The latest fiscal monitor report from the Finance Department said the federal government posted a $4.3 billion deficit between April and August. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. And the federal government has tabled legislation that will prohibit federally regulated workplaces from using replacement workers during strikes or lockouts. It would apply to all federal workplaces, including crown corporations, airports, ports, and the federal public service. The legislation does include some exemptions for situations where replacing workers would be necessary to prevent threats to health and safety. Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan lays out what this legislation would mean in practical terms. That means no new contractors, no members of the bargaining unit crossing the picket line. The penalty for violating the ban would be $100,000 per day. 
NDP leader Jagmeet Singh supports the policy. Because we know that the corporate-controlled conservatives aren't going to want to see workers have more power, that their corporate masters aren't going to want to see this legislation get passed. So we're going to have to keep on putting up the pressure, putting the pressure on. But I want to make one thing really clear. The Liberals would never have done this. They would have never tabled this legislation but for the fact that New Democrats and Labour together fought to make this happen. Singh elaborated on his party's role in getting this legislation on the table. Just because the Liberals promised something should never be taken as it's going to happen. The reality is this is directly a result of what we forced the government to do. We put it in writing that they had to do it and it's being done now. They voted against it in 2016. They were never going to do it unless we forced them to and now it's happening. And one more labor story to share. This comes from the province of Ontario. Ontario plans to ban employers from requiring Canadian work experience in job postings or application forms. Labor Minister David Pacini says newcomers deserve a meaningful chance to contribute in their respective fields. Unfortunately, recent immigrants with a bachelor's degree are twice as likely than their Canadian-born counterparts to work in jobs that require only a high school education. This is unacceptable. Underemployment is something we have a shared and collective responsibility to address. The new rule will be contained in legislation with a slew of labour law changes that include requiring employers to disclose salary ranges and job postings and boosting benefits for injured workers. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Thursday, you were asked about a town in New Hampshire that is considering a ban on all public arts. You were asked directly, what value do you see in public arts? 86% of you said a lot, 14% of you said a little, and 0% of you said none. A couple responses here on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Leona writes in, a lot. Art is the artist's point of view about something, and it's each viewer's impression of what they see and feel. Those two views might be related or might not. Regardless, a connection has been made between individuals on a different level than conversation or technology. Pearly Pigtails writes in, a little, if a local person gets paid for it and it's not too political and it's not downright ugly. <laughs> Always a good comment there from uh, Pearly Pigtails over on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Today's daily poll, it's about Remembrance Day. Remembrance Day is tomorrow on Saturday and I'm just curious, how are you marking Remembrance Day? A large ceremony, a small ceremony, or a TV and radio broadcast. In my life, I've done all three of these, living in Ottawa for as long as I did, certainly going down to the large national gathering in downtown Ottawa is quite moving, it is quite special. I always found it to be a little bit uncomfortable. There were just too many people there. I used to go to smaller neighborhood gatherings. There was a legion not far from my apartment, so I would spend time going to their ceremony. But then in the last couple of years, I find myself more and more preferring the TV or radio broadcast and taking moments to reflect on my own in my own somber moments and think about uh, people who've sacrificed way back in the day or people who continue to make sacrifices today for the country. So my personal vote here is going to be TV or radio broadcast. Laura Bain, how about you? Where do you land on this? Yeah, um, 
my plans aren't set in stone, but I think I'm going to be going downtown tomorrow for, uh, well, holiday theme craft market. Sorry, Dave. Um, <laughs> but I thought that it might make a good opportunity to stop at the big ceremony happening here in Halifax. So we'll just have to see how the timing works out on that. And if not, then like you, I'll be taking just sort of a moment of reflection and listening to maybe a, a radio broadcast. Mm. Alex Smith, what about you? Yeah, so uh, like you, Dave, I've, I've experienced them all uh, and they all have something different to offer. Uh, but yeah, in the last few years, I, I do just enjoy the, the TV broadcasts and specials because you also get to check in with what the ceremonies are like, not only across the country, but then in other places around the world, especially as like some of the other Canadian uh, grave sites and things like that from uh, the different wars that uh, Canadians uh, soldiers fought and died in. And I always find those quite moving. So I, I typically tune into the television broadcasts of uh, Remembrance Day ceremonies. And Juita Gupta, you were sitting next to me here in Studio 7 ahead of the news panel. I figure, well, you're here. I might as well ask you as well. What are your plans for Remembrance Day tomorrow? Well, tomorrow and for many years uh, preceding this, I've always checked out the radio broadcast. And I say radio very specifically because there's something really powerful about the medium um, and about how these particular broadcasts convey a sense of place and con convey the, the, the fact that it's a very somber occasion. Mm -hmm. It's a time in my life when I really find myself turning to radio so that I have space uh, for reflection, even as I take in the ceremonies. I think I would have been more likely to make it out to an in-person event had I had a grandparent, uh, usually a grandfather, who had served in, uh, in the wars. Because that's where I find that a number of people go out in person because of that family connection. Mm. I, we have a colleague here, Mike Ross, who makes a point of going every year because his grandfather served in the military, and he takes all his medals, his grandfather's medals, which he has since inherited, and he, uh, and so it's not just a way to honor the dead, but it's also a way to remember the family connection. Mm -hmm. And I think that is really important. And I know if I'd had a grandfather or grandfathers who had, or even uncles who had served in the military, then I would have certainly gone in person. But lacking that connection, I find that just going in um, and, and listening to the radio broadcast is really powerful for me. And just a reminder that AMI-TV is going to be having a, a broadcast available tomorrow. It starts at 10 a.m. There'll be a simulcast and described video of some of the uh, major network ceremonies and broadcasts as well. So AMI tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern time is when that one begins. Okay. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or 1-866-509-4545. That's the phone number, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next, Newfoundland and Labrador has announced a poverty reduction plan that includes a component of universal basic income. How could that be a national template? Michelle McQuig and Judah Gupta will weigh in with their thoughts. And don't worry, I have thoughts too. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, which means the news panel gets together. And that means the panelists are in place. Right next to me in Studio 7 is Joita Gupta. Hello again, Joita. Hello again, Dave. And via the magic of the interwebs, Michelle McQuig is somewhere in the GTA. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Dave. All right, everybody's loud and clear. Let's jump right into it. Newfoundland and Labrador has announced a poverty reduction plan. There will be an expansion of a supplement aimed at low-income families with young children. The child benefit tax credit will also increase by 300%. The plan also includes a basic income program for residents aged 60 to 64 who are receiving social assistance. Premier Andrew Fury says the three-year phased plan will streamline the provincial income support system. Michelle, that is just the thumbnail of thumbnailist sketches Truly, of what yeah. is laid out in Newfoundland and Labrador. But what do you want to explore here? Yeah, well, you're right. That is a that is a summary, a good one. But it's just the summary of a of a sweeping overhaul. This government is is deeply revamping the province's social welfare system. They're trying to cut down. They had they had thirty programs all dealing with social assistance on some level. They're trying to streamline that down into six. Um, in a bid to try to make it easier to navigate. That's that's one aspect that, that strikes me as interesting. But the, the universal basic income is really the, that's the, the, the headline grabbing item. That's the one everyone zeroed in on. And I'm no different because this is something that we've talked about on this panel before. We've seen basic income pilots floated sometimes, sometimes even executed only to be scrapped by an incoming other government. Uh, that happened in Ontario. In fact, there were three communities that were doing a pilot project on a very limited basis. And that project was underway. But then there was a change of government and uh, that no longer aligned politically with the new government's priorities and that got shelved. So now we have one with a government with a bit of time to actually implement it and they're targeting a decent sized swath of people and that they're going for pe people who are 60 to 64. They're not targeting certain communities. They're talking about 60 to 64 year olds who are already on social assistance and they're going to get that basic income. We don't have a lot of details about what the income will look like yet, but this seems to me like a, a, a a bit of a bolder approach than what we've seen in other communities that sort of tentatively try things and then they get shelved. So that's really what kind of jumped out at me is this this massive overhaul to a program that the the doctor, the, the, the premier who happens to be a doctor feels is really necessary. And uh, there's just there's so much to go with here. And, and it'll be interesting to really see how some of the theories and, and, and practices that we've talked about as a potential uh meaningful change are actually going to be executed. So now we'll have a bit of a pilot project of our own to look at. So yeah, what Michelle's referring to about Premier Fury, uh, who previously worked as a doctor, actually talked about public health outcomes of better financial mm -hmm. supports. That was a core part of what he talked about when unrolling this plan on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Joita, Michelle kind of drove the bus there towards universal basic income. Mm -hmm. So why don't you and I start there? Why don't we begin the conversation there and then backtrack to more broadly some of the other interesting pieces? But how do you think NL's Newfoundland and Labrador's approach of UBI could at least serve as something of a national template? I, like, I'm, I'm going to preamble on you a little bit more here, Joita. I think to call it UBI is actually a little disingenuous yes. because of like how mm -hmm. restrictive it is. Like you already have to be on social assistance and you're in this like very narrow scope. So I don't actually know how useful this could be <laughs> necessarily as like a national template or a UBI uh, trial balloon, but it does speak to something that people have been talking about on disability supports or labor supports or welfare for a long time saying UBI is one of these bridges or, or basic income is one of these bridges to benefit the overall program. I think 
able to read my notes from over there? Like, what's going on here? Because we are literally <laughs> about to make the same points. And I would hesitate to go so far as to call it universal basic income for precisely the reason mm -hmm. that you mentioned, which is it doesn't really apply to a very large segment of the population. It does apply to a very interesting segment of the population. You're right to say that even within the 60 to 64 age bracket, it only applies to those who are already in receipt of some form of social assistance. And the fact that it's creating a bridge between uh, provincial social assistance programs and old age security and old age benefits is really interesting to me mm -hmm. because that's one of the places where people fall in through, fall through the cracks. The other one, of course, being uh, around the age of 18 when people age out of uh, the child welfare system and then they get into the adult system and there's a lot of people who get left behind or get left out. So there's a lot of things that it has going for it. I'm interested to see, because as Michelle alluded to, that there have been case studies in, in Ontario, but I would hazard a guess, guess that this is probably a much larger sample size compared to some of the prior incarnations of UBI, if you just want to go with that term. And so it is large enough a sample size, I think, uh, and even with all of its restrictions in place, that I suspect that if I were another province um, or I were the premier of another province, I'd be watching this one very closely. There are mm -hmm. other aspects of this program that I think are worth noting because uh, tackling childhood poverty uh, and the 300 percent increase in uh, child benefits, uh, benefits geared towards children, is very powerful. Uh, but setting that aside for a moment, I think what is really fascinating to me is the fact that because this is a large enough sample size, I think it's going to attract a lot of attention to see how it actually plays out. The devil, of course, is in the details, in that um, these supplements are being touted as bringing people up to a hopefully a living wage and, uh, you know, topping off what people need to actually survive. But will it still keep pace with inflation five years from now? That is the question. So that I think a, a lot of people are going to be looking mm. at outcomes here and seeing what if uh, what kind of pressure it's going to put on the public purse. So, yes, it's a fascinating uh, entry into a very complicated yeah. issue. OK, you guys are jumping all over. Can, can I jump in with a Wait, really quick Michelle, caveat? Michelle, Michelle, hold on. You, you guys are jumping all over the place here. Michelle, what's your caveat? <laughs> My quick caveat is that, to be fair, the province is not calling this universal basic income. Yeah, um, it's the fake news yeah. media that's calling it universal <laughs> basic income. That's right, the liberal, the media elite. Uh, but yeah, no, like they're not calling it that. Um, they, they are, they are just calling it a basic income for that population. So it's more just a quibble that they're not actually calling it a universal program because it's not. You're, you're absolutely right to point that out. Um, but the other thing I'll point out as an example, as a, a potential advantage to studying these things, is that applying it across an age bracket rather than a specific community, you're going to see the effect in different geographical areas. We know we've talked about the urban-rural divide. We've talked about how costs differ best based on where you live, and a program rolled out this way will be able to sort of assess whether the, the income level that they ultimately wind up setting is adequate to the needs in, in all parts of the province. Here's where I challenge my own preamble that I put on the basic income question, where I do think there could actually be a little bit of a broader national picture conversation in regards to this very targeted attempt at basic income. It very much reminds me of perhaps the conversation going on around the national disability benefit, Michelle, that you're looking at people who are already on some kind of social assistance or social program and saying, what could basic income or a boost look like in terms of outcomes? So that's where I actually could start looking at a national template in the idea of boosting or supplementing programs. Yeah, that's a good comparison. And I, and I have to say, I really like what Joita was talking about as well in terms of bridging uh, an age, providing a bridge for a demographic that is often overlooked. Uh, so I, I, I could see 
relevance for other provinces there. And frankly, it doesn't even have to be rolled out on a national level. I do think this could be a template for other like-minded provinces, and there are some uh, to to adopt something similar. We know there's an appetite for basic income out there. It's It's been increasingly touted as a solution over the past decade, and we see more and more provinces at least being willing to take a look at it. So I think once they have the Newfoundland program up and running um, and, and some real tangible results to go with, I do think that some other provinces will get on board. Speaking of bridging, let's go back to Michelle's first fundamental question, which which of these measures do you find most interesting? I didn't mention this in my thumbnail sketch of the policy, but something Premier Fury laid out in this press conference was the idea of not losing your social benefits the second that you get a job. That, yes. that there's going to be a little bit of a timeline to figure out if that job's right for you. Is it consistent employment? When's that first paycheck coming in? Because for so long, Joita, a lot of poverty reduction advocates have pointed out that people are going to be leery of just taking any job to get off social assistance if it means a bunch of benefits disappear in the snap of a finger. That's right. And we're not just talking about the money disappearing. I mean, maybe you can replace the income, but often what comes along with the social assistance benefit package is the health and dental benefits. And a lot of jobs, especially entry-level jobs, don't have those benefits. And so even if people are able to keep the health and dental benefits intact, it can be a huge incentive to find work, especially if you're a person with a disability. That goes without saying, but I've said it. Uh, but even for families with small children, uh, being able to access basic health care or basic dental care through some of these social assistance programs is really important. But also bearing in mind that not everybody earns, uh, you know, maybe you start out working part-time, and you're not going to get full-time work. Uh, but if you start to claw back the social assistance uh, payments, the moment you bring in an income, the moment you declare income, then a family might actually end off, uh, end up being worse off. And the other issue, and I've actually dealt with this myself, um, is that when you start a new job, you're often brought in on an as-needed basis. So you don't have any permanent shifts assigned to you. And so mm -hmm. if you're on social assistance and maybe you get 30 hours of work one week, uh, one month, but the next month you only get five hours of work. That can be that kind of instability can cause havoc with your social assistance payments because sometimes you've, you know, you've overpaid, they've overpaid you, uh, and they're clawing back the next month, and so you might end up with very little money either from work or from social assistance. So if they can find a way to acknowledge the realities of starting a new job, part time, instable, uh, instability, uh, and no, uh, you know, no guarantee. Like a lot of people start out work, but you know, you have to clear probation. So if they can have a sort of a recognition of the reality of starting a new job and smooth that transition for people, I think it's going to make a huge difference to people being not only able to find work, but actually even keep it. So, Michelle, you navigated this conversation towards basic income pretty quickly, but you didn't get an opportunity to react more broadly. <laughs> Which of these measures did stand out to you in terms of this poverty reduction plan? Yeah, in addition to the ones we've discussed, one that jumped out at me, you, you alluded, Dave, to the fact that the child benefit is being tri tripled from, it's going up by 300%, which is a very significant government investment. But the other aspect of that piece that I find interesting is that they're also going to extend it. A child benefit in, the, in that province initially was being paid out during the first year of a child's life. Now it's going to be paid out for the first five years. So again, a, a very significant expansion of that program. We're used to seeing a lot much more incremental change from governments, I think, than, than these very sweeping reforms that we're seeing in this particular bill. That one jumps out at me because it shows me that there are, this is a, a province that's trying to look at social needs at all 
ages and all ends of the spectrum. Uh, we see the basic income targeting one demographic is much, much further along the life path than the child benefit one. Um, but the other interesting piece there is that Newfoundland does have a history of, of high rates of child poverty. In fact, they have some of the highest in Canada, which um, you, would, you would think that perhaps some of the territories might uh, be in a similar position, but no, it's Newfoundland that's currently in the lead on that front. And uh, so these, these seem like measures that are directly trying to target um, that specific measure. And I do find that interesting. Um, Joita's is right to talk about the, the, the income, uh, or the, Dave, I guess it was you that raised the efforts to keep your income. I think that's an explicit goal that they're trying to make it easier to do that. That's huge. And I do think another interesting piece is trying to streamline all these programs from 30 down to six. Yeah. That jumped uh, out we to know me that too. a big, a, a big part of, of navigating social assistance is just jumping through the bureaucratic hoops and trying to figure out which program means what, and 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 it it can be so so demoralizing for those who have to navigate that particular thicket. So, Newfoundland is trying to make that easier too. So it just it, all of every single one of these measures just speaks to me that this is a genuine priority for this government, and they're willing to take some moves that we haven't that we're not accustomed to seeing. Let's take a drive through Labrador into the province of Quebec mm. because Quebec has taken a bit of a different approach. They made some announcements this week as well, increasing some social assistance rates above the rate of inflation. So, for example, welfare payments will increase by over 5% on January 1st. Joita, how do you perceive boosted rates versus what I would call more of a systemic overhaul in Newfoundland and Labrador? Well, you see, the thing is, what I don't know about the Quebec rates is where those rates are vis-a-vis uh, -vis inflation, which has really shot up in the last three or four years, if they've kept pace with inflation. And so I'd be very curious, come January 1st, 2024, if social assistance recipients in Quebec are actually better off or, uh, you know, than they were four or five years ago. So are they just playing catch-up? I'm, I'm going to say odds are no. Odds, <laughs> the are, odds no. are no. And so that's the big part of this. Um, the approach taken in Newfoundland is, if anything, way more interesting to me, partly because they are targeting select populations. And I think I've made the point about, you know, needing to, you know, doing equitable work by treating different groups of people differently, identifying high-risk uh, areas or people in higher needs, children, uh, people between the age of 60 and 64, and giving them a bit of an extra boost is really interesting. Whittling down 30 social assistance programs down to six is really quite remarkable. Think about the administrative savings. Instead of administering 30 programs, now you're going to whittle it down to six, and that's a lot more money you can put back in the pockets of people in Newfoundland. And the other thing that's really interesting about the Newfoundland approach, and that gives me optimism and hope, is that I think it also heralds a discursive shift in how we think about poverty and, and, and the poor. What, what they're doing in Quebec, though an adm admirable first step, is really leaving it intact. So we see the status quo, uh, and many of the attitudes that persist about the poor and people on social assistance also remain intact, because they're not really ch shaking things up. But I'm hoping that by bringing in a conversation about basic income, by addressing childhood poverty in a very aggressive way, we're going to do away with those age-old, tired distinctions between categories of deserving and undeserving poor. A basic mm -hmm. income heralds that everybody regardless of their circumstances, has a right to a, a minimum income, a basic income, and a basic standard of living. And I think that's the real value in Newfoundland's approach in heralding this big discursive shift in how we think about poor and poverty reduction.
Michelle, going back to the Quebec side of the conversation, mm -hmm. Joita and I must be sharing notes this morning because I also sort of had this thought of, okay, 5% is great once, but I believe that the broader conversation in poverty reduction is an actual indexing of social welfare payments to to inflation, inflation more broadly totally. as opposed yeah. to sort of singular bumps but I don't want to throw tomatoes at the province of Quebec for doing this because it is still something people have been calling for uh, in Ontario for example for a long time and not getting it absolutely it, it is and five percent is a pretty significant bump uh, but it, it this speaks to where the, the two provinces are at politically right uh, Francois Legault as a, as a more right-leaning premier, th that government is generally, uh, it's actually a bolder move than I would have expected from this particular government, who, who doesn't seem to be overly fond of investing in social programs. So uh, on that front, I, I do think it's real progress. But yeah, the it does represent an upholding of the status quo by and larger, or is, are you propping up the status quo, whereas Newfoundland represents a very fundamental rethink of how this is done. But I will say that what Quebec has done here in, in acknowledging inflation is the one gap that people are identifying in the Newfoundland reforms and that the, the, that huge overhaul with all those new measures, what it does not include is an indexing to inflation. And a lot of people are saying that that does need to happen in order to make sure that people don't start falling behind again in 10 years time. So Quebec at least is acknowledging that particular piece of the complex reality of life on social assistance. Let's uh, put a pin in this one. I, I sense this will come back again, uh, whether it be uh, later in the year, or early next year, as this conversation continues. But really interesting topic being brought to the table there out of Newfoundland and Labrador with just a touch of Quebec in the mix for a little flavor as well. But coming up after the break, the focus shifts a little bit more federally. There's new data that shows the number of immigrants who are choosing to leave Canada is on the rise. So what are some policies that could lead to better immigration retention? Michelle, Juita, and I all have thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. The Conference Board of Canada and the Institute for Canadian Citizenship have released some data about the number of immigrants who are choosing to leave Canada. The data showed that in 2017 and 2019, the number of immigrants leaving the country was well above the typical national average. For fear of getting way too bogged down in numbers, since the early 1990s, about 21% of people granted permanent residence eventually left Canada to go elsewhere. Factors that influence onward migration include economic integration, a sense of belonging, racism, cost of living, home ownership, and better economic opportunities in other countries. Joita, these numbers jumped out to you, why? Well, I think the first thing to do is to put them into context. We've always had situations, uh, for as long as we've had immigrants, where a percentage have chosen to turn back and go back to their home countries. I think it's a bit concerning to me, because you hear two very different things happening when it comes to immigration. On the one hand, you hear the federal government talking about the fact that they want to continue to bring immigrants in, and they have targets. 
On the other hand, you see rising numbers of immigrants choosing not to settle here. And that has knock-on effects for not just the immigrants who come here and have perhaps dashed hopes and dreams, but also for our economy and for the country and our political apparatus. What does it mean when we seem to be going in two different directions when it comes to uh, bringing immigrants into the country, but somehow not being able to get them to stay? Michelle, Juita laid that out here. The federal government is putting out pretty aggressive targets here throughout this decade in regards to increasing immigration. For the, again, for the sake of simplicity, about half a million people a year is their target. How do you reconcile yeah. these numbers with that broader federal immigration policy? Well, that's the, that's the big question. I mean, you read these stories and, and it really makes you realize how much of a disconnect there seems to be. Um, between and I think one of the immigrants in the story that you shared, Joita, which is a really heartbreaking read, I would really recommend it to anyone because it, you hear the the anecdotes and the reasons people are giving before, behind leaving, and they're, they're, it's, it's really really sad. And what it does is it, it illuminates the huge disconnect between the promise and the delivery. And someone put it best when they said, Canada does a great job of getting people here or attracting people to come here and, and sort of selling the dream. And they don't set people up for success when they arrive. That's the disconnect for me. And we're seeing that borne out in the number of people that are leaving. And these are people by and large who have been able to find some work and who have been able to start building a life here, but they just don't have adequate housing. Um, certainly nothing they can own. Uh, the jobs that they have are not always, in some cases, they get suitable jobs, but many of them are underemployed given their skill sets. So we see this bearing out in, in all kinds of different ways, which all touch on aspects of federal policy. And it really, I think, just adds the, 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 the tension that is now in play between the number, the exodus of immigrants and the targets. They're drawing a lot of political heat on that on that file itself, on the specifically on the immigration front, but it also has so many corollary impacts on other hot button issues for this government under fire. So is really what they are at the uh, moment. So, so I want to start here. Uh, Michelle, you mentioned an article that Juita shared with us. It was from CTV. I don't have the author's name in front of me. I don't know if somebody in the control room can grab that for me while we're having this conversation so we can at least plug it on the way out. Because Michelle's right, it was a really interesting uh, story that had a lot of personal anecdotes about uh, individuals' experiences uh, as part of the immigrant uh, lens in Canada. So if somebody can track that down in the control room, I can share that at the end of this conversation. At least the name of the journalist. So uh, folks can punch that into the Google machine. Uh, Joita, so obviously at the, at the core of this, there's a conversation about retention, yes. right? That's, that's what this is. If one in five people who come to Canada as an immigrant are choosing to leave and the government wants to bring in half a million people a year, mm -hmm. that means you're going to be losing 100,000 of them over the course of time, which ends up becoming a pretty nasty cycle, yes. right? It just means you're chasing your tail the whole way through. Yes. I think what Michelle identified there and some of those, those difficulties that people are experiencing as an immigrant to Canada is something that maybe the broader population understands as well. Mm -hmm. uh, a lack of affordable housing, a lack of good jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the one thing I would argue here is because this data came from 2017 and 2019, there has been at least a smidge of a shift in the political discourse, both federally and provincially. Things like recognizing foreign job credentials. I just shared a story in the first hour of the show out of Ontario where the labor minister 
is trying to table legislation that's going to be a little bit more focused on not limiting job experience to Canadian job experience. Certainly in the healthcare field, provinces like Saskatchewan, Newfoundland and Labrador, British Columbia are actively reaching out to boost immigration in particular fields. So, so I do think there's actually a little bit of a shift here in retention mm -hmm. where some of those policies are already popping up on the books. Yes, that's right. You read my mind again because this is the thing. We've seen a noticeable We've seen a noticeable shift in some of these policies coming out of Ontario and other provinces where they're scrapping the requirement for Canadian experience. I think we've all heard the anecdote about the doctor driving a cab. We've all heard it. So yeah. we don't need to reiterate the point that immigrants are—because we have to remember that we had classes of immigrants coming to Canada. We aren't talking about the temporary foreign worker program, where, you know, people are coming in and they're working in farms or maybe in factories, and then the— by the nature of those programs, the work is seasonal and they go back. I mean, there are a plethora of issues attached to that oh, yes. program as oh, well. Yes. Oh, but yeah. we're not going to get into that today. Uh, but we're talking about skilled immigrants, and we're talking about the brain drain from other countries. These are people who worked in the tech sector, in banking, in nursing, doctors, lawyers, engineers, who have been trained uh, in other countries who could have had good jobs in, their, uh, in other countries, but have been sold the Canadian dream. And then they're coming here and finding it's just not working out. And so that we know that it's hard on immigrants. We know that it doesn't jive with the government's stated targets. And at the risk of coming across as really cold and unfeeling, it's really bad for the Canadian uh, economy that we're losing immigrants like this, because it costs us to bring—there there is a cost attached to bringing immigrants to the country. Think about language training as one small example, the administration and bureaucracy involved in bringing immigrants over. So we have to really think through why we're losing people coming to the country when it, it's a bit like being an employer and losing employees every six months. And then you're having to pay to train and rehire people all over again, again and again and again. So, as you said, Dave, you're chasing your own tail. And that becomes really problematic for uh, the Canadian economy, especially when you consider our birth rates and the fact that we haven't exactly turned a corner here. So I don't envision a situation where, you know, 15, 20, 50 years down the road, we can say, you know what? Our, our birth rates are good enough that we don't need immigrants anymore. I suspect we will continue to need and rely on immigrants, but we're making it impossible for people to make a life here. Uh, but I suspect what many people are doing is they're staying in Canada for the requisite three years to get their Canadian citizenship, which means down the road they could access our healthcare system, they could access our universities uh, and, you know, education system, but they're not really working here and not really paying taxes because they're moving off to places like Dubai or they're moving off to other places where they have oh, better oh, economics. Oh, is getting conspiratorial here this morning. Well, no, it's not conspiratorial, because I'm on a lot of—because uh, I'm Indian and I'm on—I'm um, actually on a Facebook group. So I suppose you could say I'm getting anecdotal. Uh, and that's, that's the conversation that many people are having. They're saying we cannot raise our kids here uh, in, a, in Canada. It, the, you know, we don't have adequate housing. We don't but, have but, an adequate but like, cost But like I mentioned before, I think that's actually a pretty common Canadian experience at this moment, right? Like, it is. I, I think that maybe that, that when you start sort of saying that's only the immigrant experience in Canada, no, no, that's not. like lacking a total understanding of the broader picture. No, it's, it's, it's not to say that it's only an immigrant experience. But I think when we consider the immigrant, uh, the realities of being an immigrant, especially in this context, where you're, you're getting the creme de la creme from another country, and these people are not being able to work at a level for which they are trained and educated. So yes, we're making some, taking some right steps. We're making some right steps in that direction to recognize 
uh, foreign credentials and not to create barriers in the form of Canadian experiences. But I think many immigrants are, are struggling and have made the, the trek here and are choosing to seek opportunities in yeah. other parts of the world. That's no, the crux of it. For sure. For, I, I, I'm, only dispute, I'm only disputing <laughs> sometimes when the focus gets a little too narrow. Uh, Michelle, I want to mention one more provincial policy that struck me as interesting. The province of New Brunswick has said for a lot of um, developments, new developments in terms of like job sites, hospitals, etc., there's actually going to be an increased onus put on the employer to find housing solutions for people that they're bringing into those spaces. And that certainly mm. inc includes a number of folks who are immigrants to the country. I, I think that there needs to be more onus put on the private sector here as well to say, hey, if you need to bring in a ton of immigrants to make your to make your your, 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 your place work, then you need to make sure you figure out the housing situation as well. And if that means you have to build uh, 5,000 housing units like a lot of the oil sands uh, communities do, like a lot of uh, Canadian oil companies do out there in their neck of the woods in northern Alberta and northern Canada, then that onus is going to fall on you as well. I, I think that occasionally sometimes there's too much onus put on government in this and not enough on the companies who say, we need immigrants to fill our labor force. Okay, well, what are you doing to help with that? Uh, that's fair. That's interesting. But it also presupposes that the private sector will, will invest in, in quality housing and try to do it right. And we, we've seen with the temporary foreign workers program that sometimes when employers are left to their own devices, uh, the, the immigrants are, are put into really pretty unspeakable conditions. So I do think there have to be some some standards in place or some guidelines to follow. But yes, uh, I think there is definitely room for private sector expansion there. The housing one is is is, is a key point. We oh, talked so about key. that, but it's but, so key. But that, but that kind of stuff won't go much way to addressing home ownership, right? So there's there's so many pieces that like that would be a, a useful band-aid, but a band-aid nonetheless. Um, one of the pieces that really jumped out at me too, and we talked about being sold the Canadian dream, and I think a big part of that, and it's borne out in the CTV story, is that is healthcare is a big one. A lack of access to healthcare. People have, there were some immigrants who talked about how they specifically chose Canada over the United States because of our healthcare program. And then they get here and can't even access a family doctor. So th those are, I, I'm pivoting away from the housing because I think that there's so many other crucial parts that the, that the government does have to stay involved with. So I do think that even if the private sector does take a larger role, the primary onus will have to be on governments to try to make this work, especially since this is a stated priority. And again, the great irony, the, the line coming from the federal government is we need more immigrants to fix our health care system. We need, we need them to fill the jobs in our health care system. So again, it, it turns into this chasing of the tail thing, whether it's health care, uh, housing. I, I, so yeah, I agree. Ultimately, the government is responsible for this, but, but I, I don't want to leave the private sector out of this as well, because I think no, that's that, totally I think fair. you can't yeah. have this conversation without talking about that. Speaking of uh, government and the private sector and people. Uh, immigration, a contentious political issue. Uh, let's put that uh, bluntly. Polls suggest Canadians are losing some appetite for increasing immigration. A poll by the Environics Institute for Survey Research and Century Initiative found the number of respondents who agreed that, quote, immigration has a positive impact on the economy of Canada, has dropped 11% from last year and reached wow. its lowest level since 1998. I'm going to say this pretty bluntly, Michelle. There's this book about Canadian politics about the 1993 federal election called It's the Economy, Stupid. Mm -hmm. um, Michelle, it's the economy. P people don't want to hear about immigration in times of economic slowdown. No, it's true. Um, and this also really tracks with this, a shifting in, in political alliances that we've been seeing lately. Um, 
I, I don't want to dive too, too deeply into that, but I think this really does track with a, a, a different political direction and shift that we've been seeing here. And I think one need only look at the federal polls to see who uh, has the public favor at the moment and who does not to get a sense of which direction that shift is happening in. And I think uh, that immigration policy uh, is, is part of that, not just because of, of rhetoric, to be fair, not just because of immigration rhetoric from some of the parties that are currently surging, but because of some of the existing government's own on documented failures on this. Uh, there's there's a lot of reasons for discontent at the political level with the current administration, and they're they're not all rooted in polarization. For one side, I, I will I will acknowledge that polarization is not the the, <laughs> the super villain of this one entirely. I do think it's a factor, um, but there are there's no lack of factors that are driving this kind of negative sentiment, and I think it's really unfortunate. And I I fear that it's going to fuel the fire. Um, the the CTV story didn't necessarily share anecdotes of people who felt that they were being targeted or that they were the subject of racism or uh, that they didn't have a sense of belonging or community here, but that was those were cited as reasons. And I can't see that these particular numbers are going to do a whole lot to reverse that trend. Joita, uh, before I shout out the uh, CTV uh, writer and the article specifically, uh, what do you make of those uh, polling numbers? Yeah, I think, like you, I think the major culprit here is the economic situation of all Canadians. And there's a lot of evidence to show that the moment the economic situation starts to deteriorate, anti-immigrant sentiments and racism uh, goes <laughs> Over up. and over, over and over, over again, again in the last hundred years. Yes, and that's the crux of the issue. And people have really had their backs against the wall, especially in the last two to three years, rising inflation, rising food costs. You know, I don't have to regurgitate what we already know. And I think that's really what's responsible for this upswing in anti-immigrant sentiments. But as I said a few minutes ago, I think we are far removed from a reality where we will no longer need immigrants because, really, our birth rates are not where they need to be as far as to be able to say, OK, well, we don't really need immigrants anymore. We can we can look after our, you know, aging population and we can manage on our own. That's we're just that's not our reality. So I think governments are, are caught between a rock and a hard place where we need immigrants, but you also have to grapple with the uh, fact that increasingly, at least according to this one poll, uh, it's uh, a proving to be a unpalatable option, both for people who are already settled here, uh, they're not really happy about it, and immigrants themselves are turning away from the idea of coming here and making a life here. I'm, I'm telling you, one day between now and the end of 2023, on one of these panels, I'm going to walk you through my math to solve the housing crisis. But let, I'll keep, I'll keep dangling oh, that morsel. I'll do. keep dangling that morsel <laughs> out there to keep people uh, tuning in. Dave Brown Consulting did the math at the bar a couple of weeks ago, and I came up with a pretty shocking number. Um, okay, did I want to check your work after the bar. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, I did. The beauty of uh, these calculators on the phone is uh, is is that you can see what you did uh, previously. Okay, I want to give some love to uh, journalism uh, at its finest. The article on CTV was called Immigrants Explain Why They're Leaving Canada by CTV writer Megan Dallaire. Megan Dallaire. Megan is spelled M-E-G-A-N. Dallaire is D-E-L-A-I-R-E. It's on a CTV. Megan Dallaire. Really, really interesting roundup. Yeah, really, really great interesting work, conversation. Megan yeah, top tier yep. stuff. Okay, let's go to one more story after the break. The BC Securities Commission is offering rewards to whistleblowers who flag fraudulent financial misconduct. Could the dollar amount attached to the award actually move the needle for someone to snitch? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic on deck for you. The British Columbia Securities Commission will start paying people who provide information about investment fraud and other financial misconduct. The Securities Commission whistleblower awards will range from $1,000 to $250,000. The amounts will depend on how quickly the information is provided, how it contributes to enforcement outcomes, and the seriousness of the offenses. The Commission will use an online portal to receive tips. Michelle McQuig, I think this idea is fair enough. I'm actually a little bit surprised they hadn't had something like this in place already. But what do you think about this approach, encouraging people to whistleblow and snitch? I mean, it seems to be directly modeled on something like Crime Stoppers, uh, which I, I don't have metrics on how successful programs like that are, but those sorts of initiatives are all over the place. And, and uh, presumably they're still around because they do yield some results. So, yeah, th this seems like an interesting uh, and, and, and not too problematic way to, to go about it. Um, initially, I was a bit surprised, but yeah, no, it, it makes sense that this requires some more specialized knowledge. These are these are different kinds of crimes, and uh, instituting a system and a reward system seems seems reasonable enough in that it's very explicit that it's tied to uh, a number of factors like how soon the information is provided, what kind of enforcement action it leads to, and no money would be paid out unless there is specific enforcement action taken. Mm -hmm. So there are pretty clear metrics on when the money would apply. And uh, as such, it seems like it, it seems to be a, a, a fairly sound idea that's executed in, in a very relatively clear fashion, which is not something you always see either. Joita, I, I don't have raw numbers in front of me at the moment, but I can tell you that financial fraud is, is a really big deal. Financial fraud and white collar crime is a big, big deal, whether that be in terms of uh, deceiving people for their money or whether it be things like money laundering. This stuff's all a big deal to me. And I think anything you can do to try and crack down on that is probably a darn good idea. Yeah, I mean, in theory, it's a good idea, but I am a little skeptical. I mean, what it shows us is that Canada at least has not been very good in terms of its crackdown on yeah. enforcement <laughs> yeah. of white-collar crime. And what happened to the regulatory bodies? What happened to the role of the police? I mean, perhaps we should be more proactive about prosecuting white-collar crime. I still remember, you know, the CRA dragging its feet about the Panama Papers. Conrad Black was not was not prosecuted here, but in the U.S. And although we say the United States is very freewheeling and market-oriented, the reality is they are more likely than we are here in Canada to crack down and prosecute white-collar crime. So, mm. you know, do we then lean on uh, tipsters? Is that our best approach to tackle something that has serious and far-reaching repercussions? I think it really speaks to the fact that many of the mechanisms we have in place, the regulatory bodies, perhaps the banks, perhaps the police, maybe they need to up their game. And that's a, a more surefire way to ensure that we're actually going after the people we need to go after. Because my concern <laughs> with this approach is that what if it generates a whole bunch of bogus claims? Now you have to investigate everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, that, that would be my one— Smoke like, bombs. Smoke, smoke bombs, bombs everywhere to distract from the bigger, mm -hmm. broader issue. That would be it. Uh, yeah, Michelle, and I think that's where the dollar amount comes in on this as well. Like you said, there's a clear metric yeah. for like when something's going to get paid out. But I'll say this much. If I was inside a company, and let's just say it was some sort of Ponzi scheme, if I whistleblow on this, 50 grand is not necessarily enough to make me necessarily want to lose my job forever. Yeah, that's fair. I, I mean, the, there's... <sighs> Not, not that I'm involved I, in a Ponzi scheme. Dave Brown Consulting is all above board. It's entirely, yeah, yes. Very straight up and, and legitimate organization there. Yeah, no, that that's a very fair point, as is Joe Edas, I would say, about 
where the enforcement aspect is going to come in. Uh, because going back to my own analogy, I'm going to undermine my own premise here, but Crime Stoppers is a tool used in support of an existing system that then executes those things. So it does raise questions about systems. The comparison to the U.S. is apt. I remember when I, uh, I did a brief stint in our business department at Canadian Press, and when I joined, I asked someone in my naivete, what's the Canadian of the SEC? the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States. And, and they straight up laughed in my face because there isn't one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the, the, yeah, the, there are, I don't know, but the the, the financial amount to, to me, it could, you're, you're right. I, I don't think it would be enough for me either, but for some people, perhaps their conscience is a burden enough that they're trying to contend with and they want to use this, this as a springboard to something else and this would buy them time. I don't know, right? Yeah. There's other factors yeah. that, that could mitigate the, potential paltriness of these sum and, and in some cases it could be as low as a thousand bucks and for those people perhaps that wouldn't uh lead them to take the risk of whistleblowing but i, I do think that there is a certain acknowledgement of the risk that's run when people do whistleblow because that is not uh, an enterprise to be undertaken lately uh it, it's a very bold move for those yeah. who actually have material to share and who go down that road yeah, I, that's it. I, I think the idea of being a whistleblower is a very difficult one. Maybe it's that I've consumed too many mob movies, but the <laughs> idea of being a snitch just seems like really difficult to me, Joita. And Joita, that's not to undermine the importance of whistleblowing. I, I just I just think that it's like so hard to make that choice, and I don't know if it's just money that can move the needle for someone. Yes, you're right. I think that's, that's where it becomes really tricky, because ultimately it comes down to principles more than money. And I, I think it is worth yeah. noting, because we should have just mentioned this off the top, that you still make your tips anonymously. So you're not likely to lose your job uh, unless they can, you know, prove that you were the one to make uh, to make the tip. Or, yeah, if, or, if your or company gets the... closed down, though, right? Like, yeah, you're, you're then you lose, lose your, your job. job. But you know, if you think you're going to face retaliation, I mean, there, it does. You can still make your tips anonymously. It's only when you have to claim your reward do you, do you need to come forward. Um, and I think it, when it comes to anyone who's ever been a whistleblower, like if you listen to an interview, like you know, they'll often bring them on to talk about it after the fact. People often talk about the conscience, you know, how it really bothered yes. them that something was happening. And I think it comes down to people's ethics and their belief in what is right and wrong. Uh, and that's going to be more a deciding factor than any amount of money. Uh, morals and ethics. That's a great way to wrap up a Friday conversation. <laughs> Joetta, thank you for hanging out with me in studio. It was great to have you here. It was a pleasure. And Michelle, always nice to catch up with you. I'm on vacation next week, Likewise? so have fun talking oh, to enjoy. Alex. Yeah, have fun talking to Alex Smythe on Monday. Will do. Have a great time. That's Joita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. And Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, Brock Richardson will stop by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. of a live studio audience, AMI has an opportunity for you. Kelly and Ramya are taping a special episode on Monday, November the 27th. They are looking for 50 people to be part of the audience. If you live in the GTA, the Toronto area, the big smoke, and want to participate, all you have to do is email info at ami.ca, info at ami.ca. Looking for 50 folks. Space is limited, though, so you got to move fast. You got to shake a leg. If you do attend, you get to enjoy more than just a fun episode. You receive a Kelly and Ramya gift bag. You'll also have your name entered into a draw to win one of two Apple gift cards valued at $500 each. That's a lot of apples. There's also five $50 Tim Hortons gift cards. That's a lot of donuts that you can share with me. 
The thing is, if you want to win the prize, you've got to be part of the live studio, studio audience on November the 27th. The taping is going to air on a future date on AMI-TV, TBD. To confirm your participation, please email info at ami.ca. That's info at ami.ca. Maybe put Kelly and Rumya in the subject line so people know where to put it. Hope to see you there. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, November the 10th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, AMI has special programming to mark Remembrance Day on November the 11th. Greg David will tell you all about it. And the Priscilla movie is garnering a whole bunch of buzz. Laura Bain gives you the details on this movie about uh, Priscilla Presley and her entertainment reports. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Got a disability focus here out of British Columbia. BC's Children's Representative says some families of children with disabilities are putting their child in foster care so they can get better support. Jennifer Charlesworth says families are being pushed to the edge by a provincial support system that's outdated, underfunded, and difficult to navigate. A foster caregiver would get funding in order to provide the services and supports. There would be an additional array of services and supports that that child will become accessible to. So families are in that gut-wrenching place of trying to figure out what's the best for my child. Charlesworth says the government has to act now. But the fact of the matter is that children with disabilities across the province urgently need access to support now. They've been waiting, and as we know that early intervention is critical to a child's well-being, continuing to wait months or years will mean a childhood lost and success harder to achieve. Charlesworth released a report saying the years-old government promise to revamp supports for kids with disabilities appears to be stalled. And over to the prairies. Two hydro projects in Manitoba are getting a cash boost from the federal government. Ottawa is providing nearly $185 million to replace part of an aging hydroelectric generating station and the construction of a new transmission line in southwest Manitoba. Premier Wab Canoe thinks these kinds of investments will bring skilled labour back to the province. But with this investment, we're going to bring them home to build Manitoba hydro projects, to build transmission projects, to build generating projects, to power our low-carbon economy with good-paying, blue-collar jobs. The federal funding is contingent on consulting with Indigenous communities. And finally, in Ontario, several Ontario municipalities have turned down the province's offer of strong mayor powers. Alison Jones has the story. 
Municipalities have to commit to a provincially assigned housing target to get the powers which allow the mayor to pass bylaws with one-third of council support, prepare the budget, and hire and fire department heads. Several cities with strong mayor powers have said they won't use them, but now four have given a straight-up no thanks. Norfolk County Mayor Amy Martin says she turned them down in part because her county won't be able to hit the province's target because it measures housing starts which the municipality can't control. Shelley Ann Bentley, mayor of Haldeman County, says her council is concerned the strong mayor powers sound more like a dictatorship. Allison Jones, the Canadian Press. That's your look at the regional news. Brock Richardson is standing by for sports chats. Oh boy, it is bad vibes in Edmonton. The San Jose Sharks took a bite out of the Edmonton Oilers 3-2 last night. Thomas Hurdle scored a goal and set up another to help San Jose get their second straight win. Here's the call for Hurdle's goal. Here's Eklund, who's also starting nice to get play. Nice little play and his skates across the line, tipped in front, they score! It was tipped in front of a net, and what a goal by Tomas Hurdle. The Sharks are up 2-1 to one with 9.05 gone by in the second. Oh, I love that goal horn at the SAP Pavilion. I love that foghorn. That's precisely why I played that sound this morning. Brock, you love stats. Here's one for you. The Oilers are now tied for the lowest point total in the whole league. Brock Richardson, the Edmonton Oilers, the worst team in hockey, woof. Listen, they are they are close to the bottom in almost all offensive categories in uh, the league. They are also close to the bottom in goals against average. Like it is an absolute mess in Vancouver. And I, you know, even the reporters last night when they were speaking to head coach uh, Jay Woodcroft, the reporter said, "Look, I know I'm going to ask a ridiculous question." And it's almost an unfair question, but how do you feel about your job security? And Jay Woodcroft obviously told the line of, listen, I got to worry about now versus the future. But this is a terrible, terrible situation going on in Vancouver and uh, Edmonton. My apologies. Um, and listen, Edmonton did outshoot um, San Jose 41-18, but it was the turnovers at the wrong time that just didn't work for them so there's a lot going on and I have questions as to what's next in uh, Edmonton and whether or not uh, Jay Woodcroft does survive and keep his job I mean there's no way there's no way Brock Brock three days ago no no, I'm not not Mr. Call for somebody's job right that's not who I am I'm not the let's fire everybody all the time in sports like I'll save that for like the cliched crappy sports talk radio but I will say this Three days ago, the San Jose Sharks were the worst team in hockey. They had not won a game yet this year. They had less total goals than individual players on other teams, right? Their entire team had scored less goals than individual players on other teams. They were atrocious. Mm -hmm. You lose to the worst team in hockey and have the same record as them, guess what? You are the worst team in hockey. And the Edmonton Oilers have said this every time we talk about them, Brock. They had Stanley Cup aspirations. Not all, we're going to get to the playoffs and maybe have a good year and get the puck deep. No, this team made deliberate moves to try and win a Stanley Cup. And now they're looking. Listen, I'm not writing them off. I'm not writing them off. But they're the worst team in hockey. 
something's got to change, and unfortunately, that's probably the coach. Because what are you going to do, Brock? You're going to trade Connor McDavid? You're going to trade Leon Dreisaitl? You're going to trade two generational players to say, ah, we're rebuilding again. Edmonton fans will stop buying tickets. They'll stop showing up en masse. And, and like, let me also add another thing. What are you going to do? Fire GM Ken Holland? Yes. He's the guy. The, the guy's on his last year of his deal. He's He is love, peace, and hair grease at the end of the year anyways. You're not going to fire arguably one of the best men in hockey. Well. Like, it's, it's not going to, to work. You need to do something, and you're right. Edmonton fans, they're a passionate fan base. They know what they want. You can't do this. And unfortunately, Jay Woodcroft, head coach, is going to is going to take the fall, and I would be not surprised at all if when I come here Monday, we're talking about him already being dismissed. Yeah, ex, I mean, ex Oilers head coach Jay Woodcroft. Yeah, no, yeah. no, okay, now we're be, now we're being mean here, right? We're being mean to Ken Holland, who by the way has done like absolutely nothing since he became the GM of the Edmonton Oilers. And Jay Woodcroft, like, congratulations, you have two of the best hockey players that breathe oxygen, and you can't win games. Let alone players like Ryan Nugent Hopkins and Evander Kane, who are like also excellent forwards, right? Like, like the the, the roster makeup of this team is a good team but they have bad yeah. goaltending and they don't play defense like uh, but, you know like what are you gonna do but dave the best thing that ken holland did in my opinion was bring evander kane and that's and that's a that's a stretch i i have trouble with the history of evander kane as we've talked about with track uh, track suit gate and vaccine issues and like but the best thing he's done so far is bring evander kane because he did make a turnaround for a while but if that's the best that I can sit here and say that Ken Holland's done, that's not yeah. a good resume yeah. at all. Oof, oof. Yeah, we're being mean this morning. We're being mean. I, look, I, I, I genuinely feel bad for the Oilers. But but here's the thing, Brock. I just said you can't trade these guys. But you talked about uh, hairpiece and what, what was the expression? I loved it, by the way. What was it? Hairpiece and head grease? <laughs> Love. Love, peace, and hair grease. Love, See peace, and later. hair grease. See you later. I like that. That's good. The reality is, is uh, Connor McDavid, right? The like the best hockey player on the planet right now. His contract expires not this summer, but the following summer. So they might actually be in a situation where they have to trade this generational talent, yeah. which which is which is brutal, right? Like it's brutal. Like if, if you're the Edmonton Oilers and you draft this player first overall, and you have this Leon Draisaitl who you drafted fourth overall a few years earlier, who's just been just just a revelation for what a great hockey player he is. You don't want to do that. You don't want to hit the dynamite button, but but you actually might have to because these guys are going to walk away. How, how much how much losing can Connor McDavid take before he says? I want to go anywhere else. I want to go anywhere else. Right. And can I also add, let's not forget the fact that Edmonton just built this state-of-the-art arena like a couple of seasons ago. Like they like this is an arena that is wonderful. The fan base is great. And the 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 product right now is just, oh my God. And if I was Connor McDavid, I would be looking over my shoulder going, when can I actually get out of Edmonton? And it's coming very, very soon. Yeah, literally, I think sometimes... literally in a year and a half. Like literally, he yeah. can do it on July first of twenty twenty five. Uh, twenty twenty five. Yeah, I, and and I think when you when you become a a generational player and you are the first overall, I think sometimes fan bases and organizations think, oh, he'll be here forever, and he's a lifer. I don't necessarily buy into that right now with the way Edmonton's gone in his tenure since uh, 2015 yeah. or so. Yeah. It's just not been not been good. And if I was Connor McDavid, I'd be like, see ya. 
I now, want out of here. Now, he's accountable too, right? Now, yes, he's playing injured. He's clearly playing injured. They clearly rushed him back to play that outdoor game against Calgary a couple weeks ago, coming off an injury where he was supposed to be week to week that turned into just a week. It turned into six days and Connor McDavid was back. He's clearly playing injured. He's not himself, but he's accountable too. And he's said as much that he needs to produce offensively better. He's averaging less than a point a game. And I know that it sounds preposterous to get mad at a player for averaging less than a point a game, but but that's the reality. The, the expectation on Connor McDavid is 150 points a year, two points a game. And and it's unrealistic. It's unfair. But but that's but that's as goes Connor McDavid, so go the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah. 100%. Oh, God, I feel, I feel, I, feel, I know I, I sound angry. I, like, I'm, I'm angry on their behalf. I don't even know why. Like, like, I don't care. I'm not an Oilers fan, but I'm just, I'm upset for them, Brock. I'm upset. Okay, speaking of uh, teams and fan bases that are upset, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs hosting uh, the Calgary Flames tonight. Uh, again, Toronto, the record is fine. It's more the way that they've gotten to that record. It's the performance on the ice, right? The, the, the Leafs are still one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference, and they're probably going to make the playoffs, but they're allowing a but a bazillion goals, whereas Calgary has just been bad so far this year. Yeah, it's 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 going to be an interesting matchup. This has got to be a game that Toronto gets up and plays. They've got to they've got to get up and do this game. They've got to not allow, you know, four four goals on home home ice. It just like you, you can't do it. You got to you've got Vancouver following in after that who literally leads the league in every category that I said that, yeah. you know, Edmonton yeah. is, is at the bottom of. Like, you're talking about a total turnaround, which nobody would have expected. So both of these teams are coming in kind of feeling like we got something to do here. And you saw what happened. Well, I don't know, if, Cal- Toronto- I don't know if Calgary does. Calgary Calgary might already be counting the days to golf season. Maybe, but let's hope not. I'd like to be an optimistic Canadian hockey fan and hope that they – actually get their stuff together but i agree with you uh brock give me your quick thought on the uh, cfl playoffs this weekend Uh, probably going to be a chilly game in winnipeg tomorrow afternoon maybe a little bit less so in montreal tomorrow afternoon yeah this is uh i always get fascinated by the east and west final because in the case of toronto and winnipeg they're both coming off of uh bye weeks and so let's see does Montreal uh, come out and play better or does Toronto show that they're going to have rest? Same with Winnipeg and BC. I love what Vernon Adams quarterback in BC did uh, last week. And so we'll see, can he do it again? I'm looking forward to both of these matchups. My picks in the East final, I'm looking at Toronto and in the West final, I'm looking at Winnipeg, which means we're back to a, uh, Winnipeg-Toronto matchup for the Grey Cup, which will be in Hamilton in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, third, third straight year. If that if that follows through, that's three straight years, right? Toronto and Winnipeg in the Grey Cup in the Grey Cup final. I, I believe that's the case. It's two at least. I'm not sure who, if it was the third one. I can't recall. I know it's two for sure. I struggle. I, I struggle with the CFL. It's hard, Brock. You know what I'm doing on Saturday? I'm watching American college football when number three Michigan, the Wolverines, visit Pennsylvania State. Nittany Lions, noon Eastern time on Fox. Brock, this game is not going to be pretty. I might even call it boring because both defenses are top 10 in the country. They are very, very stingy, and both teams have middling offenses. But there are players to watch, Brock. Michigan quarterback J.J. McCarthy is expected to be a first 
uh, round pick in the NFL draft this year. He can be electric. He also is mistake prone, loves to fumble the ball in key situations. So that's exciting. You never know what he's going to do. Whereas the flip side, Penn State quarterback Drew Aller, he rarely gives the ball away, only one turnover all year, but he also rarely throws the ball more than eight yards downfield. Brock, I'm only mentioning this game because there are national title implications based on the winner and loser of this game, but it's going to be a slog fest down there in Pennsylvania. I, like, we're looking at maybe like a 10-7 final score, like boring, sloppy football at noon on a Saturday afternoon. You might want to make sure the chicken wings are ready for this one. Yes. Hey, man, defense wins championships. Oh. I, I heard you say defense is stingy, so we'll see if that's the case. But, uh, yeah, I love a little more uh, high-scoring games. And you said, like, more than eight yards down the field. Yeah. That's oh, kind of gross. Oh, like, that's, man. That's, that's yuck. <laughs> oh, boy. We'll see. Right, what a day. Well, I'll, nap time is going to kick in early tomorrow, I'll tell you that much. Brock, thank <laughs> you for this. Have a nice weekend. Have a nice vacation as well. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. A movie all about Priscilla Presley is getting a whole bunch of buzz. Laura Bain will share some details in the entertainment report. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown. I have been uh, attacked a little bit here on November the 10th, 2023, as it is my uh, 40th birthday. And uh, during the commercial break, uh, there was uh, much to do in the studio as I now have a pin on my blazer on the other side of my poppy. Uh, it says birthday boy on it, a blue ribbon pinned to me. There are some uh, festive party ribbons uh, over on my right side, your left side on screen. I don't know if you want to zoom out and do the wide shot for that one so folks can see. And then uh, on my left side, uh, your right side on screen, there are a bunch of uh, balloons, uh, silver and gold balloons uh, next to Alex Smythe. I'm feeling every bit my age Age, but I do uh, appreciate the uh, kind gesture of uh, my 40th birthday. My midlife crisis is in uh, full-fledged over here. Uh, who was that singing, by the way? Oh, the chipmunks. The chipmunks were singing the birthday for me. Okay, so it wasn't that wasn't my niece or my sister uh, who were trying to ambush me. My niece, Aura, who I love dearly, uh, called me at like 7 o'clock this morning to uh, wish me a happy birthday, which was uh, early. But uh, still appreciated and lovely nonetheless. Uh, thank you, everyone, for the birthday wishes. You're all very kind. <laughs> Let's see what kind of weather is in store for my birthday weekend. Alex Smythe, I am uh, not going to be going out to the East Coast, but that's where your weather focuses this morning. Yeah, exactly. And Dave, before we jump into the weather again, I just want to extend on behalf of everyone who works on this show involved behind the scenes. We just want to wish you a very special happy birthday. Big 4-0. Oh, Be sure man. to celebrate it as you take some much needed time off next week. My Achilles is very sore. My back uh, makes a lot of noises. I snore a whole mess, but uh, I am very happy and grateful for all the love that I'm receiving today. 
Okay, so let's dive into the weather. As you mentioned, we're looking out to the East Coast. We've kind of done a check-in across the country this week. Now we're focused in on the East Coast, specifically on the island of Newfoundland. So there's going to be a lot of wintry, wet, snowy weather, especially on the northern part of the island. So it's going to be a mix of winds, a mix of rain, and a mix of snow. In the northern uh, parts, there's going to be, especially in the interior, upwards of 15 centimeters of snow by Sunday. So cities like Gander, the temperature is going to be dancing around zero. So as a result, it's going to be that weird mix of rain, ice, and snow. So it's just going to be really messy all weekend long. And they are also saying along the coastline, it's going to be predominantly rain, but as you make your way inland and then to higher elevations, that's where snow is really going to pop up. Road conditions and driving is going to be really hazardous and unstable and unsure. So be sure to prepare to have alternative plans in place or just take more time getting to your destinations this weekend. Alex, thank you for this. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for the sentiment. Don't go too far because you're going to be conducting the roundtable conversation in a couple of minutes, which is actually going to relate to this topic. The Omegle chat room service is shutting down. Mike Dubusky explains why in Tech Trends. The slogan was basically, talk to a stranger. Jamie Cohen is an assistant professor of media studies at CUNY Queens College. It would open a camera on both ends and you could hit next and be able to communicate with another person via video and chat at the same time. The site was no stranger to controversy. Didn't really have a good trust and safety model to filter out bad actors. Just last week, Omegle settled a lawsuit that accused the platform of pairing a then 11-year-old user with a sexual predator. In a lengthy statement, the site's founder, Leaf Kay Brooks wrote, there can be no honest accounting of Omegle without acknowledging that some people misused it, including to commit unspeakably heinous crimes. In theory, it had some good aims. It was using video to connect human beings to each other. But in reality, when you put video and humans and strangers together, you always get mixed results. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Like I mentioned, Alex Smythe will bring that topic to the roundtable in about uh, five, six minutes. But before that happens, Laura Bain, you want to talk a little bit about a movie that's out in theaters called Priscilla that explores the relationship between Elvis and Priscilla Presley. Yeah, that's right, uh, Dave. So this film was released last week. Uh, as you mentioned, it's in theaters. So it's written, directed, and produced by Sofia Coppola. Uh, Priscilla Presley is one of the executive directors, and it's actually based on Priscilla's 1985 memoir, Elvis and Me. So it's fair for us to say that there's good buy-in on this film from Priscilla Presley. I haven't seen the film yet, but what really caught my attention was the focus on the relationship between Elvis and Priscilla and kind of specifically highlighting the age difference and that she was 14 years old. And just to drive that home, she was a grade nine student when they first started dating and Elvis was 24. And of course, ooh, at that time, ooh, he was man. the king of rock and roll. So uh, pretty pretty big power dynamic there i guess you could say and yeah not not filming... di not dissimilar to what happened with uh, Barry Gordy one of the founders of Motown Records and Diana Ross she was also a high school student when he was mm -hmm. uh, very much an adult when they started dating Right. And so the film does include, you know, kind of how concerned her parents were at the time and from everything I've 
heard about the film, it does a good job of really portraying the Priscilla character kind of as a 14-year-old girl, looking 14, sounding 14. Um, and Elvis doesn't really come out of this film looking fantastic, uh, fair to say. Although I think it's complicated, but uh, the film doesn't use any of Elvis's music, and that's because they didn't get permission from his estate to do so. I guess that's understandable. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of been raising a lot of questions. I watched a 60-minute Australia piece that came out a few days ago, which interviewed quite a number of women who had been romantically involved with Elvis when they were young teens, like around that sort of 14 14-year-old age, and he was as old as 39 at the time, so... That was kind of disturbing, although, um, interestingly, none of these women understood the relationship, even in hindsight, as being predatory. Um, but I think we can kind of ask that question, maybe, as outsiders. So we're heading I, into a season... I, I, I think we yeah. can ask that question, maybe understanding the 73-year-old years later lens that we're putting on it, though. Like, the 1950s yeah. were a much different... Like, the 1950s were much closer to the 1900s than, than we are today, right? And, like, it wasn't that long ago the idea of, like, a fully grown adult man marrying a 14-year-old woman was, like, not like was not a wild concept right like how many royal marriages existed in the 19th century uh that were all sort of about that age gap right so i, I laura i 100 percent appreciate what you're bringing to the table here but like i think you have to at least apply this idea that the 2023 lens applied to the 1950s is not always necessarily like appropriate Yes, of course. That's what I was going to get to there. <laughs> get to there. Certainly, uh, we're dealing with the context uh, in terms of the southern United States in the 1950s and recognizing that standards might have been a bit different then. But also, I think, you know, even at the time, and, you know, this highlights the concerns of her parents and a number of the women in this uh, short piece that I watched talked about how their parents were opposed to it because of the age difference. I think it was problematic even at that time. But what I kind of want to ask, you know, we're heading into a season where a lot of you're going to be hearing a lot of Blue Christmas or even I'll Be Home for Christmas played in stores and maybe at parties. And I'm wondering if, to what extent an artist's personal life affects your continued interest in oh the God. artist? Can I separate the art from the artist? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like fundamentally, can I separate the art from the artist? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm, uh, Laura, I'll, I'll share this with vulnerability. <sighs> I'm doing my best. I'm trying as hard as I can, but sometimes it's really hard to do. Um, I, it, it's, it's really hard to do. Uh, I've tried to draw some lines here, about Michael Jackson in my life. And then I hear Billie Jean and I can't stop myself from dancing. Right. I, R. Kelly is a scumbag, like a serial predator, predator by the contemporary times that he was in. And that's proven that R. Kelly was a serial predator in the, t in the contemporary times that he lived in. When I hear ignition, my head bops like 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 there's something that's uncontrollable about the way that especially music but maybe art more broadly can make you feel regardless of the person who made the art right so do i understand you try to separate them so you feel like perhaps we should be separating out the art from the artist i try to have what i believe to be a strong moral and ethical compass and i do my best but i actually believe it's mm -hmm. very difficult and par probably impossible to do yeah i i think that for me this probably has soured 
Elvis and it's complicated of course because he's not alive and you know Priscilla and Elvis had a very complicated relationship and I think her views on him now are complicated it's not as straightforward as he was a predator so for me if I had the ability now to support his concerts I wouldn't but I don't um and as you say we do have to view this through the kind of moral relativity lens of a different time and place but I feel for me like it has probably probably tainted his legacy a bit and yeah I'm not queuing up any R. Kelly songs yeah myself yeah it's definitely it's definitely something to chew on that's for sure uh Laura thank you for this I appreciate it yeah, thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. Uh, more kind of dangerous territory here, talking about this uh, chat room that got shut down, the Omegle shutdown, uh, because uh, sexual predators were being linked up with 11-year-olds. What a society we live in. I think we need to get these birthday decorations out of here for that conversation. Uh, this is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Mike Dubusky just shared this story in Tech Trends, but Alex Smythe, do you want to bring the story of the Amogul shutdown, uh, the chat room shutdown to the roundtable? Maybe just for the sake of simplicity, sum up the story in one or two lines here. Yeah, so uh, Amigo was a video uh, uh, random pairing um, site that you could be paired with video and audio with another stranger on the internet on the platform. And after uh, allegation, well, after they found out that a 11-year-old was paired up with a sexual predator on the platform, it was shut down. And so obviously this was a serious situation that caused the site to shut down. But, you know, I was surprised that this site was still popular after being up for so many years. Like this was something for decades that Omegle's been around that people have used and engaged with. And I've, I've even seen it in the past beyond just this straightforward meeting stranger and chatting online. I've, I've seen YouTubers use it for uh, a way to demonstrate their musical improv skills from freestyle rappers using a random word generated from the person they're paired with to include in a freestyle rap to guitarists just demonstrating different skills and abilities that they can do on the fly. So uh, it, it really was a place for a large variety of interactions. But I wanted to find out from the round table, have you guys ever engaged with these types of uh, online video chat rooms? So Ramya, we'll start with you on this one. Not even. Um, I don't think that I've ever been engaged because I don't think that I've. It's in my been in my awareness, Alex. Uh, for some reason, I've just never had this kind of thing come up for me. Probably the closest time frame where something like this could have come up is around the pandemic because everybody was trying all kinds of like digital media, digital connectivity, digital socializing that uh, they had never most of us had never tried before 
But even during that time, I just stuck to whatever was absolutely necessary and never really explored too much. <laughs> this seems to be a common theme. Anytime you ask Ramya about technology, she's like, nah, yeah, I didn't like fair. it. Nah, I just, I just read books like a smart person over here. Uh, and Nazreen, what, what about you? I, I, I know that I used to mess around with chat roulette a little bit, but it very much became uh, maybe the experience that Alex had at that museum in Reykjavik uh, pretty quickly. So that kind of took me out of chat roulette. Uh, listen to Monday's show to find out about the museum Alex went to in uh, Reykjavik. Uh, but yeah, Nazreen, I, I messed around with chat roulette a little bit where it was four people yeah. in a video chat room together, but I like not like I've, I haven't really messed around with too much online video chatting with strangers. I mean, minus hosting a national TV show where I'm talking to people in their hotel rooms every day. I feel like uh, Omegle was the first and last video chat room uh, platform that I would ever try, that I ever tried. Uh, so I've heard about Omegle during the pandemic, as Ramya said. And it was one of those things where a lot of people on social media, a lot of people on Instagram were kind of promoting their stuff uh, on Omegle just to see people's reactions. So, uh, so artists would mm -hmm. sing to them right when they connect to the random stranger on Omegle and they would kind of get their reaction of, you know, what do you think kind of thing. Um, there would be so many different ways that people would connect. However, when I tried Omegle, it was unbelievable. And I was scared for my life. Um, there were very like disgusting people that I connected with and it was just out of curiosity. You know, I wanted to see how, Omega worked. A lot of people spoke about it. A lot of people told me to try it. So I ended up trying it for like 30 minutes and I was out. I was done. I was like, this is going to, this has to get shut down sooner or later. So I was so surprised that to this day, it didn't get shut down until then, until now. Um, it's absolutely, it's absolutely disgusting. There's uh, so much adultery that you'll see. And I know that young kids connect to Omegle, which scares me. It scares me. Like, you know that it's late at night, people connect to it. I've seen it. I've, I've, I've seen it happen. And it's so disturbing that young people and even adults are connecting to each other and they don't know what's up. They don't know what's going to happen. That's what my question was honestly going to be. Uh, like, mm -hmm. to me, I'm not sure exactly. I'm a very cynical person. I'm not sure exactly what the purpose of these chat rooms are supposed to be or what they're promoted to be. I know that there are lots of, you know, uh, how do you say it, like attention-grabbing things, like you said, the, yeah. that stuff that was trending on socialness. But what is it that this is supposed to be, and how do they make sure that that's, the parameters, the only parameters that are being reached on these chat rooms. For me, when I hear this stuff, I'm like, mm, yeah, obviously it's going to be bad out there. Uh, yeah, the internet's an awful place. Like, 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 I always find this to be so surprising anytime someone, like, revelatorily says to themselves, oh, the internet's awful. Yeah, the internet's awful, man. Like, there's terrible people out there, and it's always been terrible since, like, the second I logged on in 1996, and I was going into what, at the time, were, like, were text chat rooms, Alex, like, and, and message boards and stuff. Like, the internet has its positives, but my gosh, it's an oh, awful yeah. place. Like, like I, I'll never understand the consternation or surprise when people are like, oh, man, I found something awful on the internet like yeah like there's awful people everywhere alex uh, yeah and you know and you can also have great experiences on the internet and this is uh truly kind of 
this to me was like one of the uh, kind of first like unique social media interactions that you could have online, these video chat rooms. Like Dave, you mentioned the text chat rooms. I remember those in the early heyday as well. And then you got into, you know, the video chat rooms and before you got to this mass social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all those. It was more these one-on-one -on -one interactions that was so fascinating. And you didn't, you never knew what you were going to experience. You you mm -hmm. typically went, it's like, okay, this is going to be bad. But, you know, sometimes I, I had, you know, some positive interactions. You could talk to someone halfway around the world. Oh, yeah, yeah. So have, have I. So have I. a great conversation. Yeah, there's, but there's, you also have to filter bad. through a lot of terrible, terrible experiences to get that. And yeah, like, and like, and this idea of like, oh, I'm going to get paired with a rando and this rando is going to be a good yeah. person. Like, get out of here. Like, come on. Like, yeah. you've got to have a little yeah. bit, like, you have to have a little bit of control over your own life and the decisions you make. And like, encountering randos at random is a really bad idea on the internet. Like, don't do it. Uh, and obviously, yeah, when there's like, when there's like child sex predators uh, on these yeah. platforms, you got to shut them down. Like, like, come, like, I don't know. I, like, I don't necessarily get what the conversation is here. I know I watch my tone, I watch my tone. I'm a little cranky here. But, but I do want to sort of end this on a little bit more of a positive note. Even though it didn't endorse itself or call itself social media, because uh, people didn't know what social media was at the time, I wish Napster would come back, or I wish Spotify and Apple Music would figure out some of the stuff that Napster used to have going on with chat rooms inside the platform where you could look mm. at people's music libraries and talk about genres of music. Like, that was one of the most underrated features of Napster when it dropped in the late 90s and early 2000s that I thought was amazing. That was probably a precursor to social media in a big time way. Alex, one social media platform to come back. What are you picking? Oh, I'm picking MySpace uh, any any day of the, the week, Dave. That was just so much fun. And it was just, you know, you could display your music, you could control your background, you could customize it in a way that I don't think any other social media really has allowed or catered since then. And it, it was that first wave before Facebook really uh, took off that you, you kind of got a hint of the early days of uh, social media and what it could be and that, that interaction without necessarily the, the toxic side that soon followed after. Nazreen, one social media platform to come back. What is it? Uh, the innocent days of MySpace. I loved MySpace, and I used okay. to find <laughs> I used to find pictures of um, the Jonas Brothers and print them out and post it on my wall. And just, it was one of those stalker days. Stalker Nazreen. Look at Nazreen calling other people out on social media, being like, they're awful. <laughs> they're disgusting that she's stalking the Jonas Brothers. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ramya, one social media platform to come back. What is it? But they're celebrities. It doesn't count, Dave. Um, also, my oh, face, but exactly. also Vine. Vine was, um, I, I was short-lived on Vine, or Vine was short-lived, but I really loved it because it was just so musical. That's it. There was no questions about what Vine was, who was doing what on Vine. It was just so musical and cute and adorable and uh, short snippets. Like, nowadays, everything's a short snippet, but Vine was my first um dabble into it yeah short videos with music it almost sounds like tiktok uh yeah. <laughs> alex nazreen thank you for this uh ramia before i say goodbye to you uh what's coming up on kelly and ramia this afternoon at 2 p.m eastern time Okay, get this. So Microsoft is offering protection to politicians against deep fakes. Mm. It's going to be all protection, apparently. Uh, we're going to find out more on the app update with John Beeler. 
Also talking about the Toronto uh, Blue Jays with um, Brock Richardson on our sports update. And Ryan, who is joining us for a special edition of the Chatty Bookshelf because he is live on location at the Providence in uh, Anyham in Rhode Island. And he's going to tell us all about what's going on over there. Ramya, thank you for this. Oh, sorry about that. I didn't mean to cut you off. Have a nice weekend. Talk to you later. Sounds good. That is Ramya Amuthan, the co-host of Kelly and Ramya, coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Coming up next, AMI has some special programming to mark Remembrance Day on November the 11th. Greg David will tell you all about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. AMI has a whole bunch of original podcasts, and a lot of them can be found on AMI's YouTube channel. A lot of good stuff recently, and Greg David wanted to spotlight a couple of them. Greg is a communication specialist for AMI. Hey, good morning, Greg. Good morning, Dave. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you as well, Greg. So, Sean Priest is no stranger to this show. He pops by uh, once every couple weeks to talk about Double Tap, his great show with Stephen Scott all about technology. Well, Sean also has one of these video podcasts, Sean of the Shed, where he really takes these deep dives into interactions with technology and instructions with technology. And there's one that jumped out to you recently about mastering screen reader shortcuts. What stood out to you about the episode? Well, first of all, being cited, I don't use any of the technology that Sean is necessarily talking about. So I just like to listen and find out about the technology that that people like use, like screen readers. So the screen reader shortcuts was fascinating because he talks, uh, he discusses uh, shortcuts through voiceover on iPhone and Mac, uh, TalkBack, which is on the Android devices, NVDA, JAWS, and Narrator, all screen reader services, uh, and each shortcut uh, provides a quicker route to change the speech rate or the pitch and volume and media descriptions and even some of the specific application behaviors. So he really talks you through how to customize all of those services for you so that they're the way that you want them to be. And what I like about Sean is that his instructions aim to help listeners, whether they're novices or experts. And uh, when he's when he's uh, talking uh, through the process of adjusting their screen reader settings on the fly and to also increase uh, productivity, right? It's all about doing that and being comfortable with the platform that you're using. So that's what really, um, you know, stood out for me for that particular episode. That's really got to be the secret sauce for Sean's success, right? Yeah. Besides just being an awesome dude, like a great communicator yep. and a great guy, he really strips these things down to like plain English, plain English understandable technology interactions. Yeah, you're exactly right, Dave. He doesn't talk down to the listener or viewer. He's very back to basics and assumes that uh, people are new to this technology. And uh, and he's also funny too. You know, these each of these ten to twelve minute um, uh, podcast video podcasts on YouTube are there's a lot of entertainment packed in there as well. It makes learning fun. Remember when you had that teacher that that one teacher where that made learning fun? Well, Sean's the guy when it comes to technology. 
One of the other great podcasts is uh, Jenny Bovard's Low Vision Moments. Uh, Jenny, again, not a stranger to this show, frequently yeah. popping by to talk about all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, there was an episode that actually featured uh, Ramya Amuthan recently of yep. uh, Kelly and Ramya fame, and that conversation was just so uproariously funny, but also vulnerable. What do you think it says about Jenny's talent as a host where she's able to really jump in depth in a funny but vulnerable way? Yeah, I think a lot of people tune into Low Vision Moments thinking that it's just going to be funny stories about mistaking a telephone pole for a person. And certainly there are stories like that. But yeah, the discussion that she had with Ramya um, was was really insightful as well, because Ramya was talking about kind of, uh, you know, although it was funny that she was telling stories about sitting in a birthday cake or sitting into uh, a crab curry that had been put on a chair, the vulnerability came out because she was admitting to Jenny that the reason that those things happen is because because she was hiding her increasing blindness, um, either you know not wanting her friends to realize uh, how blind she was becoming, or her family, which you know kind of opens up a whole book. And they get into that discussion. But yeah, I think it's that familiarity with Jenny. Uh, when you're when a guest is on there, they really feel as though they're just having a conversation with a friend. And the result is that those the the stories that come out. Greg, uh, both these podcasts folks can find by punching them into the search bar, Low Vision Moments or Shaun of the Shed, and uh, obviously the, uh, the, the the audio podcasts as well available for folks. So uh, check that out whenever uh, you get the opportunity. It's uh, really good stuff. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review. And if you really like it, share it with your friends. Come on. Yes. Increase the reach, baby. Get out there and do some sharing. Uh, Greg, let's uh, finish this conversation and finish the week on not a somber note, but a respectful note. Because Remembrance <laughs> Day is tomorrow in Canada. What is AMI planning in terms of a simulcast or a cast around the ceremonies, uh, the major ceremonies? Yeah, great question. Um, AMI uh, has teamed their simulcasting uh, CBC's live coverage of the Remembrance Day ceremony from the National War Museum, uh, National War Memorial, excuse me, in Ottawa. Uh, it's going to be broadcast live from 10 a.m. until 12:30 p.m. Eastern on AMI TV, and that's going to be with live description. So if you're a member of the blind or partially sighted audience, you'll get that live audio description as well. Uh, and also, um, Global Television and uh, NCTV are also going to be broadcast. Casting uh, live from the War Memorial in in Ottawa, so a lot of choice there. But obviously, um, if you want your live description, tune into AMI TV tomorrow, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern. And the conversation and programming is going to go well beyond just some ceremonies and some simulcasts. Uh, AMI over the years has produced uh, quite a bit in regards to a veteran coverage. So there's a couple episodes of uh, Our Heroes. No, excuse me, not Our Heroes. I, I want to make sure I get this right. Remember. Canada remembers our heroes uh, tomorrow night at 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern time. What are these episodes going to be featuring? Yeah, Canada Remembers Our Hero Every Day After is the first one at 7 p.m. And that's going to talk to uh, those who willingly sat down and shared their PTSD stories and their recovery journey after they returned from service. So obviously mental health, very top of mind right now. So you can check that one out. And that's going to be followed by Canada Remembers Our Heroes Service and Sacrifice, which spotlights the service and sacrifice of two Saskatchewan men uh, during the Second World War. And, uh, and so, yeah, you can check out both of those, like you said, AMI-TV at 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern tomorrow, Saturday. And then after that, Our War is another Canadian TV series that follows the descendants of Canadian war veterans. Why did you want to recommend this one that's going to be airing Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern time on uh, the History Channel for this particular program? 
Yeah, this is really interesting because as you know, the generations move on from those that served and have passed away, we're getting some of those stories. And so our war is a really unique one because it's featuring Canadian relatives to learn more about what their family members did during conflict. Uh, in the episode that I previewed, the first one that's going to air tomorrow at 9 p.m., like you said, Jillian McLean investigates the story behind uh, a treasured photograph of her great-grand-aunt, Rena McLean, who was assigned to a hospital ship that was torpedoed by the Germans off of Ireland during the First World War. So that's interesting. And the second story in that for in the episode is uh, follows Jacob Porter Brown, who learns more about his great great aunt Anne Hereford, uh, who passed away before um, she could reveal that it looks as though she served at Bletchley Park in England and was part of cracking codes and spy, you know, the whole spy story. Uh, so yeah, tune into that. Uh, it's really a fascinating story of, of both of those people and, and both of these families, uh, Canadian families, about uh, what their relatives did during the uh, the First and Second World War. Greg, there's a certain uh, obviousness to this question, because I think you and I are probably on the same page on this one in terms of preserving these stories. Why do you think it's important that Canadian networks and Canadian producers continue to try and document these stories of people who fought in World War I, World War II, Korea, but even moving forward, Bosnia, Afghanistan. Yeah. What's what, what do you think the importance and role is of production companies and TV shows continuing to tell these stories? Well, I think you know it's fascinating. You know, you could you could talk uh, you know about the whole the whole story about conflict overall, but you know as as these generations have passed away, and now we're talking about great great relatives. It's just important to tell the stories and and talk about these people and learn more about them. You know, I'm a big fan of finding out about your about what your family did in the past, whether they were a general store owner in northern Ontario like my grandfather was, or my other grandfather who did uh, did spend some time when we were overseas during the Second World War. It's just important to sit and recognize what these people did. And it's also fun to learn what they did too, right? Because in a lot of cases, they weren't so different from us. Their circumstances were different, but yeah. it's I just find it really cool to find out about these stories about people and, and delve into your own family history if you can. Greg, thank you for this. Have a nice day. You too. Thanks, Dave. That's Greg David, AMI Communications Specialist. Just a reminder that AMI-TV is going to be having live described coverage of Remembrance Day ceremonies from Parliament Hill in Ottawa, tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And I do want to take just a moment to reflect and think about Remembrance Day on the way out of here today. Uh, so many times the conversation ends up being about World War I and World War II, uh, about Korea, Bosnia, or even now about Afghanistan. But like I'd like to remind you, there's a lot of moments in time where the military continues to serve Canadians and make sacrifices, whether it be living across the country in far-flung places or living around the world in far-flung places, away from friends and family, making sacrifice. And I'll always remind you of April of 2020, when workers at a long-term care home in Quebec abandoned the facility and the people who had to go in and reminder of April 2020, a few weeks into the pandemic, the people who got called in was the army. Those were the folks who ran towards the danger when society asked them to. So just remember that today and tomorrow as you're marking Remembrance Day. There are a lot of people who gave up their tomorrows so you could have your todays. Host Dave Brown. Co-host producer Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Contributors, Rami Amuthan and Nazreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanerol. Visual producer, Bruce Baclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion-Jones. 
Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. Director, Anastasia Spalding Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby. Manager of operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of live production, Paula Deneen. Director of content development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023, Accessible Media, Inc. An AMI original production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.